Brace yourselves. The following presentation is intended only for immature audiences. Ugh. Well then. And God said, let there be F-bombs. And they were good. And they multiplied. Right here in this podcast. Welcome to episode 16 of the Hansel and Gretel Code. How you doing? Hello, girls! Hey! 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 (laughs) (laughs) In our last episode, we found ourselves eavesdropping on our woodcutter couple in bed. Ugh! Ew! Hey, it, it wasn't like that. All we heard was the lady of the house reciting her mafioso recipe for dealing with the famine facing her, and, as Signora Corleone would say, la famiglia, the family. It's like a job. You do the job because the job has to be done. Capish? Come si bel. On this episode, we learn that uh, she pretty much made her husband, Signor Holzacker, an offer he couldn't refuse. Uh oh. Taco Bell or Wendy's. I chose Wendy's. Capish? Part 1. Teil 1 in which we spend a little quality time with the, uh, family. Uh, you know, forget about it. I don't. So here's our next fateful line of the fairy tale. Der Mann wollte lange nicht, aber die Frau ließ ihm keine Ruhe, bis er endlich einwilligte. For a long time. The man refused, but the woman gave him no peace until he finally said, Well, all right. Anything you want. Anything. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, well, this is a pretty short line in our fairy tale. And as fateful as it is, it seems pretty cut and dried. We already know that the wife is the villain of the story. And now... The husband, well, he proves that he's no hero. As short as this line is, though, it's still a crucial step in terms of plot development. I mean, without the husband eventually caving in to her demands, this famine business, it would have to play itself out in some other, possibly even boring, way. Yes, I know. Either that, 
But we'd need another intermediate scene involving something like, uh, I don't know, maybe him waking up in bed with a bloody horse's head? Uh, Uh, What do you think? I'm listening, but I don't like it. Now, this might sound important, although I think it's really just an aside that this step includes the very first lie in the story. Huh? Well, when our Holzhacker finally says yes to the dirty deed of ditching his kids in the woods, that's the moment when he out and out lies to himself. How? Well, by imagining he could live happily ever after without his kids. So that's one thing. And then, of course, you remember in episode 15? No. Um, we spoke about the uncanny similarity between this part of the story and Genesis 21, verses 9 through 14, which is all about Abraham getting the word from Yahweh that he'd be uh, better off listening to his wife, Sarah, and agreeing to her demand that he get rid of his oldest son, Ishmael, and a kid's mother, Hagar, the Bond girl, or Bond woman. You know, Abe's a guma. Oh, forget about it! Forget about what? Oh, well, this just makes our intuitive connection between different lines in the fairy tale and specific Bible stories that much stronger and funnier. Funny how? Like I'm like I'm clowning here. I'm to amuse you or what? Uh, you know, uh, funny. Oh boy. Oh boy. Marone! Oh boy. Ooh. Ah. Uh, so. Uh, okay. That's pretty much that. There's nothing more we need to say before moving on to the next line in the fairy tale, right? And finally. Well, I gotta tell you, that would be fine if we were in a hurry. It's just not the case, though. Why the fuck not? Because this little sentence is a meme that's so loaded, it's hard to know where to begin. Taco Bell. Or Wendy's. Oh, brother. All right, let's just start with the feelings it evokes. Who would have thought such a feeling of empowerment could come from such a distasteful thing? <laughs> I feel colors. You're scaring me. Part two. Tile Spy, in which we get awfully serious about comedy by chopping onions uh, no 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 we we just peel them okay whatever you say who's going to listen to this this lady's persistence and insistence in the matter of her own survival versus that of her children it's awfully disturbing I know, I know, I know. As I said in the last episode, 
It's one of the most disturbing aspects of the entire tale. Because it goes against everything we expect motherhood to mean. It's really terrible. Of course, while there's nothing funny about the subject of their disagreement, which amounts to straight-up child abandonment, the fact that the woman nags and nags until she finally gets her way, well, that's a comical cliché about husbands and wives, and it must be as old as humankind. Absolutely not. Well, taken out of the context of all the pathos that our fairy tale drama has so far created, we can see this line for what it is. What's that? A very silly and stereotypical foible of human relationships. Go to a therapist. Well, it's something that calls to mind a Punch and Judy show. Uh, not to mention that famous adult version of such silliness, La Comedia dell'Arte, with all of its bombastic, stereotypical characters and plot lines. See, but this isn't just a silly stereotype. It cuts so deep and close to the bone of humanity it also qualifies as archetype. Yeah, so what? Well, it serves notice that Hansel and Gretel is neither straight-up buffoonery or frivolous fantasy fiction. What it is instead is a brilliant rhapsodic collage. Wait, 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 wait. What did you say that was called? A rhapsody, actually. What's that? Well, a rhapsody is something like a mashup. It was a well-known technique of storytellers, in which they composed their own unique new story by taking parts of other stories and uh, stitching them together. And in this case, we have a kind of mashup of different stories stitched together from those stories we found in episode 10. Remember? No. Well, in addition to stitching together parts of other older stories, our fairy tale author created a kind of collage consisting of various archetypes of human behavior and experience and arranged them in such a way as to tell a dead serious truth. Uh? Hey, this truth is so cleverly disguised, we don't normally realize that Hansel and Gretel constitutes a literary equivalent of the Commedia. You can't be serious. Now, I'm not accusing the Commedia of heroic archetypal strivings. See, but while offering up the broadest of humorous stereotypes as entertaining bait for the masses, the Commedia's topical use of caricature and satire to lampoon local religious, political, and social issues, as well as personalities, now that was the hidden barb that kept its more sophisticated audiences hooked. The Bard's attempt to woo has failed. Likewise, Hansel and Gretel has always offered entertainment and diversion for bored adults. However, its intelligently hilarious comedic elements, consisting of sharply drawn caricature and devastating satire, that has remained hidden from 
everyone but a small circle of highly influential, yet uh, long-deceased, conoscenti. Are you kidding me? Hey, I kid you not. Uncovering this comedy material, that'll provide further evidence that many fairy tales, just like those fancy French ones of Madame Dalnois, well, they're not the homely, ancient artifacts of culture that Grimm's uh, may or may not have believed them to be. Is that so? Well, this is just scratching the surface of their fascinating, multi-layered depth. Good grief! See, just naturally, it wasn't the witty, satiric element that hooked us all so deeply as children. It was the irresistible power and pull of its archetypal elements. Accordingly, it's not the earliest publication date or the most gruesome details that constitute a fairy tale's so-called original story. It's these archetypal elements themselves. That's it. And because the comedy is so intimately entwined with them, it's about time we all get the joke. Because, as we're going to see, it's no laughing matter not to. <laughs> right. Well, whether we take this story literally as some semi-historic societal tragedy, or prefer to see it as fictional entertainment, our abhorrence of the mother with her evil agenda and our contempt for the father with his spineless capitulation that's very real and perfectly legitimate. Oh, absolutely. Right. And that's because their behavior itself is archetypal, meaning that the capacity for it resides somewhere in every single one of us. What? Hey, just remember, the more powerful our feeling of indignation at the despicable behavior of another even when that person is fictional, as in this case, the more certain we can be that we're dealing with a projection. In other words, their bad behavior is mirroring unacceptable behavior, either actual or just potential, that we're blind to in ourselves. Oh no, you can't be serious. That is some bullshit right there. Knowing this is Powerful as hell. And that's because it gives us a heads up to some aspect of our own shadow, both personal and collective. Shadow, of course, being a blatant Jungian term. Not again! Yeah, well, we're never compelled to see fairy tales from anyone's psychological perspective. But if we can manage to wrap our brains around the possible metaphoric meaning, of this disturbing fairy tale behavior, we have a real shot at understanding the hidden point of this fairy tale. Yes, yes, this is the most important part. This fairy tale is going to show us how our own culture bullies and nags us into accepting option A and acting out the equivalent of this couple's dirty deed not on other people, but on ourselves as individuals and our own 
personal consciousness. Bollocks, just bollocks. All right, so how about we come at this from a slightly different angle? All right, if you insist. We can easily see that this lady is being portrayed as a kind of uber-evil Eve, tempting her man not towards greater knowledge and awareness, and uh, not even towards some tasty little bite of disobedience. Instead, she's pushing him into a despicable and narcissistic act of survival. Now, as such, she represents an oddly familiar and obviously selfish desire to look out for number one, albeit in a coldly expedient, if not morally acceptable, manner. However ugly this may be, examined without the complex filters of morality, ethics, and emotion, she could simply represent our own survival instinct. The truth, of course, being we all have one. It's a dog-eat-dog world out there, and I don't want to be the guy wearing the Purina underwear. Understanding this is a classic example of recognizing a projection. And that recognition is key to withdrawing the projection, which is actually a powerful method for raising our consciousness. Hooray! Uh, But don't be fooled. This particular recognition, that's only the first layer of the onion. There are deeper and more embarrassing layers to recognize in this very step. Oh no! So, uh, I can only say, proceed at your own risk. I'm out of here. Part 3 Teil 3 In which we zig and zag our way through a dense, dark thicket of devilish doubts and arrive at the other end with a completely clear conscience. I think. We need a clean up on aisle 13. That's aisle 13. Beyond the immediacy of the physiologic fight or flight mechanism, which uh, her nagging behavior doesn't quite match, she personifies a different, particularly insistent archetype. Oh, you're such an idiot. One that we might, at first blush, be inclined to call a nagging doubt. Which, when faced with any sort of dilemma, is another name for that incessant, problematic voice between our ears. You know the one. What are you doing, you moron? A voice that's often characterized by a little whispering devil sitting on one shoulder. You goofed up, kid! Now it's only fair to point out that doubt plays an important, legitimate, and creative role in the realm of science, whose purest intent is to seek the objective truths of nature. Behold, the mystery of the cosmos. I see six flowers. 
and whose major impediment to progress? Well, it's not any limitation of existing technology or even a lack of imagination, but a mind that stubbornly clings to untested notions of belief. Man has never understood the true power of the atom. Doubt, you see, is not always a devil. As perhaps the most advanced and sophisticated tool of the rational intellect, it was doubt that led to the Cartesian revolution of scientific methodology known as the Enlightenment. Ta-da! And thus, the fascinating technologic advances of our own age. You see, I designed this polygonizer just for you. I will call it Polygon 2. Yeah, without this handy little conceptual gadget called doubt, we would all be forced to accept whatever authority we were taught to obey, trust, and believe in concerning the workings of the physical universe. Whether that authority chose to recognize Copernicus, Galileo, and Darwin, or stuck fast to Ptolemy, the book of Genesis, and uh, Joe Rogan? These are confusing times. Let our compassion and faith in the Creator guide us through them. Indeed, without the necessary stimulus of doubt, all scientific progress would have to wait for the grace of revelation. All right, well, that's, uh, that's good enough for me. Uh, it's close enough. <laughs> or depend upon the partisan whims of authority for official permission to experiment. Yes, I've got an inside job for you. But in this fairy tale instance, uh, doubt doesn't seem to have anything to do with science. That's correct. Or uh, does it? Well, I... I don't know. And while we allow ourselves the luxury of an emotional response to this dire situation, and indignantly question the mother's morality, she could, in utter innocence, represent a purely logical, almost clinical response to the empiric fact of famine. Maybe. Now, as heartless as her proposal seems, if all scientific progress depends upon the rationally cool ability to ignore emotional attachments to cherished beliefs, then maybe uh, she, like a medieval Mr. Spock, is on to something. Fascinating. Yet while she's busy trying to solve the immediate problem of famine by getting her recalcitrant husband to comply with an admittedly cold-blooded, but very workable plan, we've all, quite obviously, been grabbed by our ethical and moral shorthairs. Ow! 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 Now, instead of helplessly wringing her hands like her indecisive spouse, she's come up with a practical, empiric solution. And so, uh, maybe we're all being a little too judgmental here. Um, I'm not so sure. Wondering where the hell her conscience went? It doesn't help to solve anything. And labeling her as a despicable devil in disguise? That's uh, actually a projection, isn't it? I don't know, mate. But a projection of what? I don't think you know. Uh-oh. 
Well, right here in the middle of our simple fairy tale path, we've just run into one of the thorniest of philosophical, psychological, and theological thickets known to mankind. One involving conscience, ethics, and morals, just to name a few of its tangled conceptual issues. Oh, crap. Now, being a decidedly Germanic tale, this enormous and dense thicket of briars before us is none other than the impenetrable forest of Kant. Fichte. Hegel. And a vast company of Teutonic deep thinkers, with forbiddingly tangled branches going off into the medieval scholasticism of Aquinas and Duns Oh, woe is me. And formidable roots going back farther and deeper than Augustine. Boy, no wonder it's a matter of projection. Who can blame us for not wanting to explore such impenetrable and excruciatingly dry-as-dust territory? (coughs) We're not likely to make much, if any, progress here. So, looks like a major detour is totally in order. Roger that. In fact... If we don't give this philosophy business as wide a berth as possible, we run the awful risk of tripping on those roots and falling into some bottomless rabbit hole, or just getting stuck on any one of those myriad pointy thorns. Ouch. Or is it thorny points? Uh. Ah. Uh. Ouch. Well, not only would we find ourselves lost and confused, but much, 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 much worse. We'd all fall fast asleep from boredom. Just like poor Briar Rose. Oh, shit. But, let's just stop for a moment and uh, look. Must we? See, there's actually a small, admittedly poetic opening straight ahead. What? And quite magically, there's no need for us to read, discuss, or know anything about Kant, Ah! Aquinas, Ah! or any other incomprehensible stickler for philosophic and theologic precision in order to cut right through this mess. No way. Instead of requiring our strictest attention, it turns out that Persnickety Professor Kant Ah! is right here to benevolently watch over us and even come to our aid, just like Obi-Wan Kenobi, in one crucially important step, albeit much further down the road. Nonsense. Seriously, if we'll just use our intuitive force, we should have no great difficulty in passing through this dark, prickly barrier. Not only unscathed, but way better informed. Mmm. I believe that when I see it. Are you ready to fear the force? Well, here goes. 
Keep your eyes open, boys. When it comes to that devil on our shoulder, what's glaringly obvious is that he or she is always accompanied by an angel on the opposite side. Right? Yes, I'm well aware of that. I'm fixing that. And see, when in doubt, we can be sure that both devil and angel are whispering to us simultaneously. Ah, very good. In fact, being in doubt means that the mores, morals, and authorities of our tribe and upbringing, our culture, are all telling us we should zig. Well, that damn troublesome devil insists on telling us we should zag. Have you ever felt like shutting the fuck up? Now, we've all been taught to identify conscience as the angel to be obeyed, and the devil of doubt as the evil goat to be ignored. Oh, absolutely. But is that really the case? Yep. Well, here's the thing. To put it bluntly, have we all been duped in some biblical sort of Ponzi scheme? What are you talking about? Of course, when it comes to nagging, whether it's a nagging conscience or nagging doubts, who cares? Both sides can be equally annoying. For the love of everything sacred and holy, would you please shut your yapper? Well, cutting right to the chase, this story forces us to ask ourselves, is a rigidly dogmatic conscience always angelic? And are independent-minded, disobediently questioning doubts always evil? So how should I know? Who even cares? See, in other words, while this nagging woman might seem to be the stereotype of illegitimate doubt and the devil, what if she more accurately represents the archetype of conscience? (laughs) In our next episode, we do some dumpster diving to get to the real bottom of conscience. And what we find there is a copy of Henry Miller's novel, Sexus. Life is X-rated. Well, that's all for now. I'm already busy working on episode 17. And while I wish I could promise to crank these episodes out at a regular, predictable pace, as you've probably already realized, that just ain't gonna happen. This material takes its own sweet time getting itself organized and ready for publication. And I've got very little say in the matter. And yeah, sure, I'm the author. This is my podcast. And this material, well, it doesn't exist anywhere else in fairy tale or folklorist literature, academic or otherwise. The fairy tale itself, though, that's got the enormous and fascinating weight of history riding on it. Which means I've got an awful lot of lifting to do. That said, the more of you out there listening in, the easier it is for me to do that lifting. So would you please, please, please share this podcast with somebody? 
Don't bother me. Can't you see I'm busy? Yeah, I, I know. I'd feel the same way. Anyway, I'm going to keep making this podcast. And that's a promise. Even if there are only like, uh, what? The two or three of us who like it? Oh my god. Alrighty then. Ciao, avoidue. This recording will self-destruct in five seconds. Ciao, ciao.